0: Uh, as a chemistry teacher, for I was me, I was a chemistry teacher for a lot of years. Uh, my children loved, I, and I did a lot of these, but my children loved the demonstrations the most. So, you know, I worked out all kinds of these things. Uh, you know, pour some chemicals together, and they change color. Uh, create a liquid from a solid, create a gas. I had this wonderful reaction that made this purple cloud of gas.
1: It wasn't all that
0: good for you, but they were young, you know. It it had a stink to it, you know. But it, it was this purple cloud. I did a lot of fire and stuff as well, a lot of explosion stuff. Halloween, yeah, we'd blow up a pumpkin every Halloween. Yeah, we'd carve the face out of it and then put the pieces back in and then blow it up. And then all the pieces go flying out. Um, And you know, it's people love those things because people love to see that which is wonderful more than they want to hear about it. Same with us; with we're visual. uh, We want um, as we love plays and movies and stuff. And uh, and so when it comes to the love of God, which we're going to be looking at, we looked at it yesterday and today and tomorrow, um, God reveals it, and, and, and God uses the word demonstration, and he demonstrates his love. And there's a lot of people who talk about love. There's a lot of songs about love, ad nauseum, poems, stories, books, movies, and so on, and um, a lot of people say, I love you. A lot of people uh, say, I love this and that. Um, but what happens with us is it's when we're, we're really in a bind that we actually show what we love. And that's what God does for us. And then he turns around and says, now I want you to do this. And so we get caught in the same conundrum because it's so much easier to talk about God's love than it is to do it. Now, when we're talking about God's love this isn't a chemistry demonstration or a you know uh, you know helping a little old lady across the street or as that old cliche is this is actually laying down your life for the sake of others all the way through and through to your enemies and that if you're going to show it you can't fake it so it's far easier to talk about it We're going to talk about it today, so you don't have to actually do it today. Well, at least for this hour, you can just hear about it. But um, God is going to challenge us uh, in this brief study of his love to be what he is, and we're going to fear it. Don't be honest with yourself. You're going to be afraid to do it, Um, and God is going to help you with that. If you want to do it, you will. And God's going to help. He's going to give you the power to overcome that fear. But if you don't deal with the fear and if you don't um, be very truthful with yourself as to whether you're actually living in the love of God or you're not, then it's never going to happen. And, uh, And this is something that God wants for us so very badly. So we're going to start actually in Genesis, Genesis 22. And let's open up with prayer and thank our Lord for his gift of his word and for the gift of his presence and which it's a lot of this is about that (laughs) Um, just the ability to be in the presence of his word which puts us in the presence of him and so with humility and reverence and thankfulness let's pray Our Father in heaven, thank you for all that you do for us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You have done and you are doing as he now sits at your right hand, praying for us, interceding for us, providing for us as you always do. We thank you for your word that opens up to us the the depths of your being, your person, your plans. Through and through, from Genesis to Revelation, there's a seamless whole to it, with so many parts, though. and Sometimes our head spins trying to figure out all those parts, but we know, Father, that with you all things are one and true, and as our subject is of love. As we approach this subject that is enormous, Father, we just ask for your clarity in whatever ways that you would speak to each one of us through your Spirit, that we would see What you would have us see. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Love is used in language all the time. It's used in uh, often, I would say, mostly in romance. The Bible uses it exactly the same. Uh, It's multiple times. Uh, The Bible does not hide human love behind anything, even when it's ugly. And it does get pretty ugly. Uh, the Bible reveals it. There's a love for all kinds of nasty things in the Bible done by people who are are not too good. And there's a love uh, people have that who are good people, who are people who love the Lord, but yet they get their eyes on the wrong thing, start loving the wrong thing, and they fall and fail badly. But when God showed His love, He's shown it multiple times. I say we talked about it a bit. Um when God say for instance when God clothed Adam and Eve after they fell. That was an act of love. Uh, when God called Abraham, when God established Israel, when God gave them the law, when God forgave Israel over and over and over, uh and and provided for them, raised up judges after judges and kings and and those you know, and, and, and never quit on them and actually gave them promises of which he said, I will never, ever break this promise. It's all a manifestation of his love for a people, for the human race is the representation of it. And we, uh, you know, have not responded properly. And then God. So, you know, this this love is expressed in multiple ways and then it is expressed in its ultimate way and it, in its purest in its deepest form, and that God shows. It's a demonstration. It is the demonstration of his love in all of history, and it's Christ on a cross. God showed his love in its truest expression, and it was the greatest event in the history of the world. So when God shows his love, he didn't say, you know what, I'm going to set out to really wow them. God said, I'm going to show my love in the way that it is going to save mankind. And that event became the greatest event in the history of the universe, of the world. You know, a lot of people uh, say that, well, you know, look at all this terribleness in the world and all this misery and all this suffering. And they point to this, this, and this. And then they say, well, how could we, you say you have a God who loves the world and who loves mankind? Look at all the misery. And then we turn around and point to misery. Our Lord on a cross. Jesus Christ on a cross. It's the ultimate misery. That any single human being could have ever experienced. He experienced it. This physical torture. But also this innocent, sinless man who is judged for the sins of the whole world. Separated from his father. Judged, forsaken by his father. Completely alone. You could say he not only died in his body, but... For a number of hours, he died in his soul. Somehow, I, none of us can comprehend it. And now we we say, well, you see misery, and you say, where's the love of God? I point to misery, and I say, there is the love of God. It's right there for anybody to see it. And so we see it. And I think all of us would be are, are rather impressed by it. And have been multiple times. And then we find out that God tells us, now I want you to love others the way that I love you. We say, well, that's serious business. You want us to love others the way that you love me. And you say, well, you know, and how are you going to define my love? Just to make sure. Because if you're going to love others the way that I tell you, then you have to know what my love is. So do you know what my love is? And we again search the scriptures, search the scriptures, <laughs> and uh, and you know that you know we look, we look. It's it's a it's such an important term in the Bible. It's search the scriptures. It's right there. I can't. I translated it this morning when I was doing my Greek work, and I'm like, ah, oh, there, this phrase, search the scriptures. Um, and we look, and we say, well, there it is. It's demonstrated, right? You can't, so there's no way that you or I, if we're actually looking at the scriptures, could come up with some weird idea of what God's love is. Or water it down. Or make it more palatable to the kind of love that I would prefer, which has a lot of limitations to it. But we can't do that. Not if we're looking at the scriptures. Because on the Scriptures is Christ crucified. For His enemies. In the Scripture there, we see it. It's all over the place. Of our Lord giving Himself for us. And it, you know, how how in the world could we... I said, well, all right, I won't water it down. All right, so how in the world am I supposed to do it? Love is come on, a strong emotional attachment or a desire to possess or be in the presence of something. Uh, the first instance of love used in the Bible is here, is Genesis 22.2. Two. Uh, the Hebrew word is ahav. And this is the first time it's used. And this is significant. 22.1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Hineni. This Hebrew word, Hineni. It means, here I am. It's used over and over throughout Genesis. It means you present yourself and I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to hear. I'm ready to do. Here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Whom you love, there it is, there's your first instance, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. How significant is it that this is the first place that love is used in the scripture and it's Abraham's love for his son to whom God says, go to this place and sacrifice him. As a burnt offering for me. Well, I I mean, not only is this an obvious representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the Father would offer his Son. But Moriah is the very, very mountain. It's more of a hill, but it's more of a, a, a very mountain on which Christ would die. Seamless. You see, so where we have love first is a clear representation of where it would be shown again in the person of the Son of God who would become a man and take upon himself to be judged for the sins of the entire world, to be separated, forsaken from his Father. For us, the cost is incredible. And how in the world are we worth it? And We're not. We're not worth it. Talk about getting railroaded, you know. Well, if you all go out, my, my wife loves to yard sale and stuff like that. She always loves to find a bargain, right? All yard sellers like, they'll hold up that. See, I got this for a dollar, you know, and it's this, whatever it is. It's worth five, you know, but the fact that you got it for one. Are we a bargain? And it's completely the opposite. Like God got hosed, right? But this subject of love, as you see it here, it's throughout the Scripture. And see, if we're going to understand it, we have to look at it throughout the Scripture. And look at it in all its ugliness as well, because it gets pretty ugly. Not when God uses it, of course. Now, the second instance of love is in Genesis 24, and that's Isaac's love for Rebekah. And In 20, Genesis 24, he takes Rebekah into the tent and loves her. It's marriage, it's a sexual union, it's a relationship with Rebekah, whom he did love. And so we have here the first instance, which is really a representation of God's love. And then in the second instance, we have a representation of man's love. Um, and God doesn't disparage man's love right he doesn't throw it out all the patriarchs think of uh you know how does abraham you know uh, get isaac (laughs) you know uh he loved abraham loves sarah isaac loves rebecca jacob works 14 years for rachel and Jacob had his own problem. He's got four women in that poor, poor guy's tent. <laughs> and, uh, but yet this love of them for one another is actually an impetus to the, the bearing of children and to the creation of the patriarchal, you know, created family, which would become Israel. So this, you know, the... Abraham wanted to possess Isaac and he did he longed for Isaac for Sarah to have a son We know this whole story right he told God why don't we just have Ishmael be the guy and you know and and God's like no this is not it's not going to go down that way your wife is going to have a child both of them laughed at God he's 99 she's 90 and the whole thing. And he wanted to possess Isaac, and he did. And then God said, "Give him away." Right. And so, I mean, I'm thinking about this now while I'm—I didn't even think of this while I was putting this together—is that here you possess, and now God says, "Give it away." I'd be like, "Well, you just gave that to me. Can't, I should possess." And God possessed. They possessed one another, I guess you could say, the son and the father for all of eternity. And the father gave them away. Abraham gets Isaac back. God gets his son back, if that's theologically correct. And, you know, whatever God says, if you give that Didn't Christ tell us you'll receive a hundredfold in this life? Whatever you've sacrificed for me, you're not really losing. Although at that time, and there comes the fear aspect. God says, come on, hand it over. And you're like, I don't want to. God says, trust me, trust me. It may not come back to you in the same form, in the same way, but it is going to come back, and it will come back bigger and better. You trust me. Loosen that grip. So God's love actually acted so as to possess us and bring us into his presence. And that he did because he wanted us. Now, here's where we have to be careful because people have taken this point, which is true. And so, well, God was lonely, God needed fellowship, God wanted this. And really, then we become the center of attention and we become the most important thing. And that is not true. We are not the important thing. The important thing is an important He. It's Him. It's God. It's Him and His glory. He's important. Not us. His love is not the important thing. Love, love, God is love. It's not the other way around. It's not love is God. We don't worship love. That gets you way off track. Don't do that. We worship God and God is love. That love acted on our behalf. So we make sure God is love. Love is not God. And so the priority is not us, but Him. And this will keep things right in your heart. Why didn't I get that? Why didn't he come through for me? All right, Deb and I were talking about Job just before class. Job, you know, what did Job do wrong to get what he got? Nothing. All right, Satan challenged Job's. Uh, Satan challenged God, really, and Satan challenged Job. And God said, "All right, Job. All right, Satan. You can, you know, you can do to him terrible things." And Job had no clue why it happened. So, why did God do that? Job asked the same question eventually after his three friends were of no comfort. And Job was, (laughs) there's some marvelous lines in it. Or, you know, he's like, God, if I could just have a day in court with you, but then what would you, you know, what could I say? What can I say to you? And he's just so broken and lost and just doesn't understand. And yet God followed through with it. And God never told him why. Didn't apologize, that's for sure. And why? Because it's God's glory that's important here. But at the same time, God is not going to, because His glory is wonderful, He's not going to do things to just like torture us. For the sake of doing it to express his power, you know, that's what tyrants do. You know, small people, small-minded people with a lot of power—they express hurt on people so that they could flex their authority. God never does that. He is righteous and good, and His glory therefore is always good. So, though I don't understand it, and I don't understand why, why would He have me love? The way that he loves in a world that doesn't care for it, see it, or respond to It's his call. In ways that are far above my pay grade. This is going to bring some marvelous glory to him. I don't know what's going on. But one thing I do know is that he is good. And what he calls me to do is good. And so in this you know this love that God has for us which is in our passage that Jesus Christ himself and our father loved us or have loved us and brought us comfort who comfort us takes us right back to the cross because that's the depiction that is the central to depiction we could go to many things in the scripture that depict God's love for Israel for individual people in the bible Uh, and all of that would be great if we were going to do a whole long study on love. It would be fruitful. But since this is going to be somewhat short, we're going to go right to the source. So go to 1 John chapter 5 to first see what he's given us. So God is love. It's not love is God. God is love. And love acted. So when we say love acted, love demonstrated itself. And it acted on behalf of those who were perishing. The gift that love gave is the very life of God. And I, and I would say this is why it's so expensive. Why it costs so much is because of what he's giving us. The value of the gift is shown, a value of any gift, how much it costs a person to give it, and the uh, worthiness of the person who receives it. If you put those two together, you see the value of a gift. In 1 John 5:11, John writes, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's so simple. So simple. And yet, so profound, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. If you have the Son, you have the life. So, you know, how do I know I have the Son? This I've believed upon him, and I, I understand what he's done for me. I, my faith has been in the gospel. And if your faith is in the gospel, you possess him. If that's true, you possess eternal life, and eternal life is the life of God. So the gift is God's life. It doesn't make us gods. It makes us humans who possess his life eternally. This is a life that is of a quality of life. It's not a just a duration, although it is that. But I say that quite a bit when I talk about eternal life. It's a quality It's the life of Christ that came into the world, that lit up the world. It's His life, His way, His love, His patience, His strength, His courage, His wisdom, His compassion, His humility. And all of it working together in such a seamless, functioning whole that we would call human life in a day-by-day experience in which he's expressing that life in his words and his actions. And behind all those words and actions in our Lord is this relationship with his Father that he just adores. Hmm? That's why no one has to tell Jesus, you know, it's time to pray. He does it because he can't wait. No one has to tell Jesus it's time to read the Psalms. He longs for the time to read the Psalms or any other passage. But getting us country club American Christians to read the Bible, oh Lord, you got to pull our fingernails out to get us to open up the Psalms. What? They're all the same, aren't they? Boring. behind the life is a is an intimate relationship with God that's personal no one sees that but you and him and you know with time now i hear if you if any of those words are convicting to you i would say good and i would also say that act on that conviction with just the slightest changes. I would even say forget, forget the slightest changes maybe. Act on those with the willingness to change. In other words, to honestly evaluate your relationship with God on a personal level. Um, what is it? And if it's weak, admit that. Not to me, to him. And pursue it. And I guarantee you, God will, God will bring you there. I almost said drag you there, but that's true too. Sometimes he's going to pull you by the nape of the neck. But you know, pursue it with him and it will change in marvelous ways. Because without that intimate personal relationship that's behind the scenes, this expression of his love, it'll be just a show. And Jesus' love was no show. God's love was no show. There's a lot of people who are doing the show. Speaking of which, so we just write, he gave us what? Eternal life. In this incredible passage in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. How is this possible? I don't know. Nobody knows. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Does this mean that God died? Um, No, I would say no. God can't die. I think that's a pretty reasonably solid theological position. But in some way, shape, or form, that's God on the cross, and he's reconciling the world. Now, reconciliation means what? Make peace? It means to take two parties who are enemies and bring them together. And that's what he did. He died for our sins. He didn't count them against us. And in Colossians 2, he nailed them to the cross. They're not counted against us. All right, go to Romans 5. So that uh, what I have on the board of what we just read, so what did he give us? Eternal life. And what did it cost him? His life. So the cost... Now, and this is amazing to us, is that, you know, first off, I can't pay that. Nobody can. And so it has to be given by grace. Who could attain it? Who could find their way... Now, I want you to, to, for today, picture this as a door. You know, salvation. And Jesus says, I'm the door in in John 10. Um, That the door, you need a backstage pass to the place that is filled with holiness and righteousness and sinlessness. A place that the Bible calls heaven. And... The one who lives in heaven is God. The one who is there, the, the Son of God, resurrected and ascended, is there. And for us to be with him, to have this life, we need to get through a door and and have the um, quality about us that allows us to remain. But you could never get in in the first place, but you know, narrow is the door that leads to life, right? And and that door is opened by the love of God. And the door is Christ, right? So God so loved the world that he gave his son. And, And that door is opened by this love and what it would cost him. Look at Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. And that, what that means is, is that someone might die for someone who's righteous, who does good things. Uh, perhaps for a good man is someone who is, is beyond righteous, but actually does good. And maybe someone would dare even to die for them. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He calls us in this passage four things. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. Enemies are in verse 10. We're in verse 10 and we're enemies. Uh, Ungodly, helpless sinners, and enemies of God. And, you know, this, he died for us so that we would have, as we read, eternal life. Did he send another creature to do it? No, why not send an angel or make a creature to do it? That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And Jesus is a created being. That God created him to do the dirty work, so to speak. But no, uh, all the, that's, that's a cultish idea that he actually sent himself. The Son and the Father are one. The life that God has given us has to be given by grace because we can't attain it. And here's another thing is that it can't be forced. This life cannot be forced on anybody and therefore it could only be given by faith. So grace, faith, and we're saved. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So did God want humans to hang out with him for all of eternity? Like as if he was lonely after an eternity of just the three of them. They're like, maybe we should get some pets. I don't know. But that's actually, some have come to believe that because, and I I understand it. I I don't mean to make fun of anybody, but it's, you have to accept the scripture for what it says and not alter it because what the scripture says is crazy. Right. And what people do is they take the crazy and then they make it a little less but when we when we say they make it less crazy or we call it crazy, we're we're measuring it according to the standard of earth and this world. And people don't do this. The gods that people have invented or Satan has invented are not like this. And So we try to make it more palatable by making it more human and earthly. God was lonely, so he needed to fill up heaven. This is not the case. The case from the scripture is that God is love. And love demonstrated itself to the creatures that he had created in his image who fell. Who fell by their own choice. Who were warned not to eat of that tree. They chose independence from God. They chose to leave. And God's love got them. God's love acted in a way that demonstrated itself. And not because God was trying to impress anybody, it's what God it's what love does, what God's love does. And you know, we in the human race we have an inkling of this. If you fall in love with somebody, anybody, they fall in love with someone, they will do things they won't normally do. They'll sacrifice in ways that they won't normally. And that is an echo. It's a tiny little stream running off the love of God that's way up in the mountain somewhere. They don't even know the connection. But it is connected. People who love a pet will love a... I am astounded now because... My, my house that I grew up in, my parents were both from Ireland, and the pets that were in the house, they weren't in the house first off, and, and they were not allowed. And they were out in the fields. they both grew up in farms in Ireland, and the dogs were for chasing sheep around and, and you know chasing cows around and stuff. And then when you get back, you know they come here to America. they haven't changed. And so all us kids wanted dogs, and you know our dogs were not treated very well. At least by us. So, and, you know, if a dog got sick, well, uh, you know, here's a – we could either get rid of them or you have a vet bill. Oh, good Lord. You know, there was no such thing as a vet. And then then I see – but then I marry into a family that has a vet in it. Amy's a vet, Chris's sister. and, And I see these bills that people pay for their pets. People will pay, right, Sonny? So Sonny's sitting over there saying, thank God. But if you were Mike and Anne Chagrou's dog, that that would be it. If you needed dental work or uh, X-ray or something, you'd be you'd be a let go. They put the they tie them in a sack with some rocks and throw them in the river. Yeah, Did they? Yeah, yeah. My mom told me that. That's what they would do with the extras. Uh, anyway, why would people do that for a pet? Because they love them. It was a long commercial to get back to this point. That love will make you do some crazy stuff. Love made God do some crazy stuff. And then boy people are going, oh, you know, God, you know, God has this romantic love. Stop that right there. Just because it has something closely echoing that which is human love doesn't mean it's that. God's love did something incredible that you and I have spent a whole lifetime learning and never come to the depth of it. I think of all, all of eternity. Right, The only earthly thing that exists for all of heaven are the scars, the nails, the form of that nail through His hands or wrists, wherever they went through. That's the only earthly thing that exists for all of eternity. Is that imprint. That nail, which will know, you know, is long, long gone. It made an imprint, and the shape of that imprint is eternal. The one thing, that impression. So, we're let's look at the Gospels. Uh, look at Mark two. So now we have to. We're going to just go back and forth. I think here. So we we go to the love of God, and we. Behold that. And then we turn from that and go to our own hearts. And then we see us. And some some have called this uh, a, a spiral. It's called a hermeneutical spiral. Hermeneutics is just a science of interpretation. But you go to the scripture and then you come back around to your own soul. And then you go back to the scripture and you come back around. And you keep making changes every time. As you're learning what the truth is of the scripture and making that right in your own soul and that takes a multiple spirals you know you're doing this all the time as you're learning and growing. And so it's not surprising that love is a key theme in the gospels and especially in what we call the Sermon on the Mount um, which may in as is, well, I'll leave that I'll run out of time if I. Tangent on that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you, you have heard to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So, you know, Jesus magnifies love to the point of himself. Of what he's going to do. Now notice this. That This takes us now to the Pharisees. And though we may all say, well, we're not Pharisees. And I'm sure that you're not. I hope that you're not. But we have our traditions. And the Pharisees had theirs. And so we're going to look at an example here of Jesus breaking Sabbath traditions. He didn't break a Sabbath. That would have made him a sinner. He didn't do that the traditions that the religious crowd had come up with, many, many, many rules about the Sabbath that were not in the Mosaic Law, uh, he broke those, and it would seem he did so on purpose. And so this is going to be an example of loving principle more than people. Now, the the. Principles is a tricky word for this, because, and it's the only word I really could come up with, is that um, a principle may be so close to God that it cannot be broken ever. And then there are other principles that are tangible, malleable. So in other words, in the Bible, we have, "Should I eat meat, and sacrifice to idols?" It depends it depends on where you are and who you're with. It's a, it's a very flexible thing. Should a woman wear pants? Not a problem anymore. But right I I'm not that old, but some years ago it was an issue. Should boys swim with girls? Should we smoke? <laughs> Drink, dance, R-rated movies like oh, all those I've heard of those. But depending on where the culture he is I read uh, one of this guy's books. He he did his uh, Ph.D. in London, and he was with a group of Christians. And he he's the group that he was with in America. They didn't touch a drop of alcohol. Then he goes to London, and he said, all these Christians they drink tons of wine, and they think it's a sin to read the Sunday paper. So they've got their traditions. So say you walk into their house with a Sunday paper, and you're like, hey, have you seen this? And they're going to be like, blasphemer, you know. Simple things. But yet, we can hold on to traditions, whether they're cultural, whether they're from our families, whether they're from the religion, that, or religious church that we were brought up in. And when the people that we're supposed to love are in violation of our traditions, our love grows cold. And this is what Jesus deals with here. Look at Mark 2.23. And it happened as he was passing through the grain fields. On the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, is this unlawful on the Sabbath? Absolutely not. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry. And he got this, uh, the Greek word that at least Mark chooses for Jesus to say here. Have you never read? It's a really strong negative. It's like Jesus saying, Don't you know this story? Like, its it's a bit sarcastic. Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his company became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, there's some astounding things in this passage, and it's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. I think it's in all three. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, Mark's is the shortest account here, but um, first off is the Sabbath. And he says this. We've got a big, what is that? It's a beetle. Um so the uh, the Sabbath is what the Sabbath is a day of well make sure you don't do a whole bunch of stuff because we're watching you know and, and and the Sabbath was therefore you know if you're in Israel in the first century here or, or in Judah is it really a relaxing day is it a day I, I'm thinking on some I'm I'm thinking it is at least you don't have to work it's probably a very celebrated day. But because of these multiple rules that were brought into it, it is a day of rest. People aren't working. But there's also that, what if I break it? And all of a sudden, upon this so-called rest that you have, is this, even if it's small, is this little bit of fear. I mean, they made rules about how far you could walk on the Sabbath. 200 meters, roughly. They didn't have meters back then, but... Right? You say, like, I've got to go get the mail. Oh, too far or whatever. I don't know. There are all kinds of rules. But what is the Sabbath? And this is beautiful. This is what the Sabbath is, is the privilege of enjoying the presence of God in this world. We say it's a day off. Oh, no, it's not that. It's far more than a day off. Why do I, I do a, a picture of the Garden of Eden? Is because that was when the first Sabbath happened. And we think to ourselves, well, you know, it is funny that God had to rest with, like as if he was tired after six days of creation. But when he rested, he said, my work is finished, I rest. But who else is resting? It's not just him. Adam and the woman in the garden. They're at rest. They are in the presence of God in His world, enjoying it. Are they doing nothing? No. God gave them a bunch of work to do. He told them till the ground. And there's actually the Hebrew word has this nuance of protect. Or or tend means to protect or guard. I don't know, protecting from what. They didn't do a very good job, by the way. But, um, you yeah, know, so they've got tons to do, whatever it is. They've got each other. Not good for the man to be alone, so we're created as social beings. Hence, there's a big plug there for in this love is the body of Christ, us together. And we're to live like this. Our world doesn't look like this anymore. God Almighty, no, nor do our bodies. <laughs> but... Yeah, if I was sitting on that rock for any length of time, I'd be like, oh, my back, you know, like, like they are in the picture. <laughs> but the Sabbath was then given to Israel, and it was put in the Ten Commandments. It's like right at the beginning. Keep the Sabbath holy. And you kept the Sabbath holy by doing what? Well, he told them, don't do any work. Don't do any work. He doesn't elaborate on that. There's some other things in there, too. Uh, The only specifics, you can't kindle a fire. Gather fuel. So you do all that on Friday, by the way. So get your fire going and get all the firewood on Friday before the stars come out, and then you've got it. Just throw wood on. Um, Transact business and carry burdens. And carry burdens was obviously meant towards not contracting business. In other words, not doing work. I mean, a burden could be a speck of dust on your hand, technically. And But the, here came the Jews. They added to the Sabbath with tons of rules. And instead of enjoying rest, which I'm thinking Israel did, even with all the rules, it was that... You know, that element of fear. And that the day became legalistic. You know, and Pharisees can look around and see what in the world you're doing. So it, it brought them a, a feeling of power that the small-minded always love. So what were they against? Well, a couple of people are hungry and they ate. So what is here? Because our subject is love. Do they love man or do they love their tradition? What if the person was dying of hunger? What is the big deal? By the way, plucking Sabbath, what they would do is they'd pluck the head off, they'd grind it up in their hands and they'd eat the grain. It's completely legal under the Mosaic Law. Under the rules, is that doing work? Carrying a burden? Kindling a fire? Transacting business? No, it's not. So what is reasonable and good, I'm sorry, when it is, love states that people take precedence over principle. And we've got to be careful about the reasonable and good. Some people think this is free reign to just be a rebel. You know, Jesus was just breaking the rules. No, he wasn't. Jesus was proving a point. That when it's reasonable, this is why he uses David. Was David when in first Samuel, David's on the run with his men from Saul. They're exhausted, they're hungry, they end up in uh, it's Nob at the time. And David goes to Abiathar, the, the high priest, and he says, I want to eat that we're gonna eat that bread the author said, uh, okay, he gave it to him. But the law stated it since in my notes, Leviticus 24.9, only the priests were to eat of that bread. That's the show bread that was on the table, the 12 loaves that were there. Only the priests. But David ate it. And there's nothing in the scripture that says that God was either remotely upset with this. And Jesus, therefore, vindicates it and says, well, look, if David... In his need, when he was hungry, people are more important than traditions. The tradition's important. The showbread's important. We're not throwing it away. But David's more important. Now, and this from the New Testament, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. That's from eating meat. Oh, yeah. I figured I'd run out of time for this. I know, right? That, uh, but we will. I, I'm, I'm going to have to finish it tomorrow. Um, because in the next, because Mark's not done. Uh, this is a different event, but Mark puts them together because it's the Sabbath again. And then Jesus is doing something else that the Pharisees are not enjoying. And he's healing someone. So we go from somebody's hungry. And my tradition says, uh-uh, you can't eat. And then we go to a guy who's got, it's a withered hand. I don't know, right or left. And this withered hand would have made this man condemned to poverty. He can't work. You know, possibly he's a slave. Because he can't you know he can't support himself, he can't work. And Jesus says, you know, is it right that I heal him on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And their conclusion is no. And you see the the difference that he's showing us here is that love elevates people above traditions. And so what's most important is the salvation of that person's soul. Now, it's important here that we understand that what we're talking about in terms of people, whether they're hungry or they're handicapped or they've got fill-in-the-blank, that we're actually helping them. Okay? So what, we're, what love does is do, does benefit and good to others. What a lot of people think love is in our world is just doing anything for anybody. And it made me immediately think of the homeless situation. It's easy for me to think of that now because right now in Dallas, a block away from our house, some dude has plopped a tent on the sidewalk. We've not seen this in Dallas yet. And it's right across the street from Maggie's school. And he just showed up yesterday or the day before. It's right on a public sidewalk. Um, and so, the, the homeless situation like that we have here, is it, are we doing them good? Now, in some cases, maybe yes, in some cases, maybe no, but the overall policy of just giving people free space to do what they want and giving them needles and all the blah, 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 everything that, that people are doing or that governments are doing, is it actually helping them? And, and a lot of people, and so we say, well, you're being cruel. Uh, We don't want to be cruel either because you can go to the other side and say, well, you know, I'm not going to do anything for anybody because they're all bad, evil people. They're not. There's probably some that are, you know, truly in need that we could help. And so we've got to search that out and discern that. Um, But the problem is is that as as the Lord is getting to here for us is that our love – can have limitations. And these are the marks of false love. I'll leave you with this. Limitation. Is that something's withheld. And this is not God's love. right? The loving of. It's in our example in Mark. We'll, we'll return there tomorrow. We've got to make sure we get that through. That um, You know my tradition says you can't do that. So you've just limited yourself based on something that's not near as important as the heart of that other person. And again, emphasizing the fact that I'm going to benefit them. Uh, Some people think love is is just the bleeding heart that just does, and some people do this just to assuage their own guilt or to impress others. Look, I give and I give. And, you know, in, in all honesty, they don't give a care about the other person. They just want to show themselves to be gracious. Limitation control is that you're manipulating others. I'll give to you if, and then detachment. Detachment is, I'm not going to sacrifice. I'll give, I'll do, but not to the point where it's going to hurt me. Certainly not. Not to the point where it's going to impair me. God's love hurt him. It hurt him in ways that we don't understand. It's true, but still, a sacrifice is a sacrifice. We can talk about it. God is challenging us to do it. All right, so we'll return to Mark tomorrow. It was way too short on that. But uh, yeah, because it's a marvelous passage, especially with the Lord. The Lord's going to say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Just to leave you on a high note, a good note. If the Sabbath is that, and it is, for us now, because the Bible says that we have a Sabbath with us every day, He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He gave us this. And without His love, we're not going to be there. So that's what's at stake. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for all grace that comes upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, paid the price for our sins, so that we can count ourselves your children. Your love is an enormous subject. I pray that the words that you have spoken to us each today would impact us in ways that you would have it, so that we would grow closer to being ones who love like you love.